Welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, a proud member of the Inside Voices Network, and now on Patreon. In this episode, Meeple Lady gleams the cube in control, Christy battles the classic monsters of Horrified, I live the pirate's life in ship shape, and Ruth searches for King Arthur's worthy heir with the help of Merlin. But first, Sarah defends Spirit Island against colonizing invaders. You might have noticed that there are a lot of board games about colonization. You might have also noticed that it's become a controversial theme in recent years. I'm not surprised it's so popular. Exploring territory, expanding your area of control, taking resources and using them to build cities and towns, it seems like a natural thematic fit for a board game, as long as you identify with the colonizers, not with whoever was already living there. But what if you don't? When Greater Than Games first launched Eric Royce's game Spirit Island on Kickstarter in 2015, I was exhilarated. A game about colonizing an island where you play the island? Your goal is to drive out the colonizers? What? Five years ago, that felt like a revelation. It used to feel like board games with, to be blunt, racist themes were the norm. Like it was so common you had to either hold your nose and ignore the implications of what you were doing in the game, or else just skip a lot of games that sounded really good except for all that racism. <clears throat> Archipelago. I'm not going to pretend that everything is better now, like we're in a marvelous new era and racism in board game design is dead. But I think things have improved kind of a lot in terms of awareness that board game themes can alienate and exclude, or welcome and include. And for me, Spirit Island was a huge part of that mental shift. It put the lie to the idea that racist themes have to be accepted if we want good games, because Spirit Island is a terrific game. It's complex, multi-layered, it's fun, if a bit daunting, the first time you play, and it's still fun after many plays. The spirits vary widely in playstyle, and there's a lot to explore with how different powers interact with each other. Even the same spirit can feel different from game to game since you have so many choices about what aspects and powers of the spirit to develop. And the adversaries and scenarios add even more variation and allow you to make the game more difficult or easier depending on which spirits you match them against. Spirit Island was reviewed already for the 5 by by Cat, so I'm not talking too much about specific rules but I encourage you to check out Kat's excellent review way back in episode 24. I will say that Spirit Island has a novel difficulty arc, which was one of the nicest surprises of the game for me. Many co-op games start kind of easy, then add more and more challenges as the game goes on, so that by the end you're sweating every action. Spirit Island is the opposite. In the early rounds, the invaders seem unstoppable, but as the game develops, the spirits gain new powers and especially as the fear level increases, it gets noticeably easier. I start every game of Spirit Island thinking, how can we possibly win this? And by the end, I'm thinking, how can we possibly lose? It's one of the many ways that Spirit Island differentiates itself. A lot of co-ops feel like basically pandemic with a different theme. You know what I mean. You get four actions and one asymmetric power. Whether you're fighting disease, fire, or movie monsters, the games structurally feel very similar, not Spirit Island. Even though it involves moving around the board mitigating damage and bad stuff happening at the end of every turn, it doesn't feel at all like a pandemic imitator. Since Spirit Island's release in 2017, there have been two expansions, both designed by Royce, Branch and Claw from 2017 and Jagged Earth, which is so new that I just got my Kickstarter copy a few weeks ago. Both add new spirits, adversaries, rules, and scenarios. 
They also add new mechanisms like different tokens that do different things, spirit aspects that add something new to a spirit you might have played too many times, and suggestions for new board layouts and new ways to combine adversaries and scenarios. The expansions seem in some ways designed to mitigate the criticism that, while Spirit Island has extremely high variability in terms of how all the asymmetric powers interact, an actual game can be somewhat predictable in terms of what's going to happen next, especially the behavior of the invaders. This allows careful planners to thrive, which can be either a blessing or a curse depending on how you view AP. But sometimes you want a bit more of a tactical game, and so Branch and Claw adds event cards that introduce more randomness to every round. And some of the Jagged Earth spirit powers are off the chart in terms of versatility and not boxing you into one playstyle. The more out there spirits are labeled as being for experts only. And in general, I'd caution anyone who isn't a seasoned Spirit Island player from trying to include too much expansion content in one game. There is a lot here. New rules, new mechanisms, new variations, new bobs and bits. And Spirit Island was already a fairly heavy game. Besides playtime, just managing all the components could be a challenge if you add too much to one game. With so much content in the expansions, it sounds churlish to ask for more. But I was hoping for two things I didn't get. First, a campaign mode where you could sequence scenarios in a thematic way over multiple games. And maybe the spirits and the invaders could get stronger, retain something from game to game. Second, a more robust solo mode. I've been playing just a regular two to three spirit game by myself when I play solo, and we'll probably keep doing that. Maybe these will come in future expansions. And that's Spirit Island. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you've discovered the perfect combination of spirits, adversaries, scenarios, and board layout. Then I really want to hear from you. During one of my Target trips, which are sadly less frequent and not as relaxing these days because I mostly want to get in and out of the store quickly, I happen upon Control in the board game aisle. Control, which is spelled C-T-R-L, is a game release this year from Pandasaurus Games. It's designed by Julio E. Navario, with artwork by Steve Torres. This 20-minute game that plays 2-4 to four people is a 3D area control, and comes with some colorful and chunky blocks, which are always fun to play with in your hands. The object of the game is simple. Have the most of your pieces showing when looking at all five sides of a cube. The bottom that touches the table doesn't count here. The main battlefield is a black cube that has nine holes on each side that fit the chunky blocks. A two- and four-player game starts with the same four colors, yellow, blue, green, and pink, all of the pastel persuasion, placing one block at the bottom center space of each side they're starting on. Another matching flag is placed on their cube facing up from the table. The three-player game has a slightly different setup, as shown in the rulebook. On your turn, you remove your flag, you place three of your blocks in any straight line, and then you replace your flag, which can point in any direction except down back toward the table, and this blocks your opponents from placing along that line. Players continue taking turns until all 22 of their blocks are placed, and then the game is over. I've only been able to play this game as a two-player game during the pandemic. And in two-player games, you're playing as two different colors, and you secretly pick one of these colors at the beginning of the game to score at the end. The other color can just be used to block your opponent's colors, 
or just to throw them off your scent as to which is the true color you're scoring. Placing your three blocks requires a bit of strategy and planning. You have to continue placing them in a straight line, which can be in any direction, in order to expand your domain, but not get cornered into a tight spot. You can go up and down levels and turn corners, but you can never go into the table and the bottom side is off limits. The ideal spot to land on is on a corner because your block piece will be visible on two sides for endgame scoring. That is, if your opponent doesn't gain control of that space on a future turn. When everyone is done placing their blocks, you look at the five different sides and count the blocks that are exposed on that face. Each block scores one point, and you do this for all sides except the bottom. The rulebook has a fancy score pad shown on it, but unfortunately this isn't provided in the game. You can download it off the Pandasaurus website, or just find a piece of scrap paper to tally it all together. The person with the most points wins the game. In the case of a tie, the player whose flag is the highest above the table wins the game. Control the game is a neat concept, and there's something so fun and communal about passing along a thing you've had a hand in creating. And it's lovely seeing your cube evolve into a wonky creation that somehow always ends up looking like the UC San Diego Library. Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. But this game has a few tiny structural flaws, which isn't a complete deal breaker for me. It can sometimes get hard to place your blocks onto the cube, especially as it gets bigger and bigger. I wish the blocks somehow snapped into place, as they can easily pop off if you don't push them hard enough, or if you push them too hard to try to secure them, thus making the game possibly hard to play for people who don't have strong grips, or maybe younger children. Lastly, the different colored blocks have no identifying markers on them, so this game could be difficult for those who are colorblind. In low-light settings of some games I've played, even I've had difficulty differentiating the blue and green blocks. Control is also widely available, as I picked up mine from Target, and it goes for about $25. Overall, it's an easy game to jump into, and I can see families and friends playing this short filler around the gaming table while enjoying some light conversation and drinks. And who doesn't love playing with their chunky blocks? And that's Control! This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Halloween is approaching, but it might not look the same this year in terms of trick-or-treating and other celebrations. If you're looking for something to do at home this year that's going to give you that Halloween vibe, Horrified is a great option. It's a light, thematic co-op game in which players work together to defend a village from classic universal monsters, including Dracula, Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, the Mummy, and more. The object of Horrified is to defeat all of the monsters that are in play before the terror level reaches its limit or the monster deck runs out. Some of these elements are comparable to Pandemic. The terror level is similar to the Outbreak track, the time limit of the monster deck is similar to the city cards, and you typically have four actions to carry out on your turn. So if the Pandemic franchise itself is feeling a little too real these days, Horrified could be a good alternative. Okay, so back to defeating monsters. Defeating monsters in Horrified involves collecting items from various locations around the board and doing different things with them. The items are things like a knife or a camera, although it doesn't really matter which particular items you have. 
What matters is that each item is blue, yellow, or red, and it has both a number and a particular location that tells you where to put it when that item is drawn from the item bag. Then when you get attacked by a monster, you can discard items to absorb hits. If you don't have enough items to absorb the hits, your character goes to the hospital and the terror level goes up by one. Each monster in Horrified has its own little mat with some kind of puzzle or assortment of items that you have to contribute to the cause of defeating them. For example, to defeat the creature from the Black Lagoon, you have to discard items to sail a boat along a path that leads to the creature's lair. For Dracula, you have to go around town to different locations to smash his coffins by discarding red items, and so on. Each monster has a difficulty level in the rulebook, so you can take that into consideration for your group. You can also play with different numbers of monsters, so not all of them are going to be in every game. For a novice game, they suggest two monsters, standard is three, and challenging is four. The monster's movement and attacks are controlled by a deck of monster cards. The monsters get a turn after each player turn. In order to resolve a monster turn, you draw a card and carry out whatever it says. The monster cards will tell you how many items to add to the board that turn. Each card has an event that may or may not happen depending on whether that monster is in the game. Then at the bottom, there's a row of icons showing you which monsters will activate that turn and how many dice they roll if they attack. I think the row of icons is a nice way of handling the monster activity, because it means that I don't have to go through the deck at the beginning of the game and take out all the cards for monsters that aren't in the game. When you roll dice for a monster attack, each monster has a special power that can activate if you roll a particular symbol. For example, the Wolfman has a Berserk-type ability where he can attack everyone in his space. Overall, the monster activity helps keep people involved when it's not their turn and creates suspense since the monster's movement and attack patterns aren't predictable. Along with items and defeating monsters, Horrified also has innocent bystanders called Villagers. Sometimes the monster deck will tell you to add someone to the game in a particular location. The villagers don't really do anything on their own, but each villager wants to go to a location as shown on their standee. As you travel around the board, you can choose to take villagers with you. If you get them to their destination, you can draw a card that will let you do something helpful such as move monsters or add items to the board. However, villagers are also a liability in that they're defenseless, and if a monster successfully attacks them, it raises the terror level. The villagers make decisions more interesting because sometimes you have to decide between making progress toward defeating a monster and protecting the terror level. The design and art of Horrified is by a group of developers, producers, and artists called Prospero Hall. Horrified is published by Ravensburger. I think the art and components are well done, and the minis are reasonably easy to paint if you want your game to have even more table presence. The player count can range from solo to five players. I think it's a great experience with three or four, and fewer works well too. With five, it can get to be a while before the turn comes back around to you, and if you're stuck in some obscure location without many items, it can be hard to avoid getting beat up on by a monster in the meantime. If you're looking to start a new Halloween tradition this year, or if you're looking for something on theme that will be approachable and fun, give Horrified a try. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening. The high seas of the late 17th century were home to all manner of pirates, smugglers, and other questionable characters. As the captain of your ship, can you negotiate the rough-and-tumble sailing world and bring to port the most gold, cannons, and contraband? 
or will your vessel become just another rat-infested ship? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Ship Shape, a game by Rob Daviol, with art by Daniels Castillo, Andrew Hepworth, and Ben Wooten. Ship Shape was published in 2019 by Calliope Games, who sent me a review copy. In Ship Shape, each player has an identical deck of crew cards numbered 1 through 10, along with a randomly chosen ship hold to store gold, cannons, and contraband. Each round, a stack of crate tiles is placed on the table. Then players play a crew card face down and reveal simultaneously. The highest card takes the topmost crate tile, and so forth. After three rounds, players score the gold, cannons, and contraband in their holds, then discard everything. For the next voyage, players receive new ship holds and a new stack of crate tiles is bid upon. Play continues for a total of nine rounds to make up three voyages, and the player with the most points wins. Ship Shape totally flew under the radar last year, and it was out of print for a while, but thankfully copies are now readily available. It's a smooth blend of bidding and set collection, and while the pirate theme works for the game, at its heart, Ship Shape is an abstract puzzle. Each player's hold is a 3x3 grid pre-printed with a few rats, which are worth negative points during the scoring phase. During each turn, you're bidding against the other players on the stack of crate cards. Every crate card features each of the three items, cannons, gold, and contraband, but in various shapes. For example, one crate card may have the three items lined up right in the middle of the card, while another may have them in three of the four corners. The rest of the crate card is empty, which allows you to see all the way down your ship's hold. You may position your crate any way you want, but it must be completely on the 3x3 grid of your hold, and once it's placed, you can never move it. Of course, you'll want to cover up those rats so you don't lose points during the scoring phase. The main source of tension in ship shape is during the bidding phase for the crates. Each turn, there are a number of crates stacked up according to the number of players. In a three-player game, there are three crates. Players are only allowed to look at the crates from the top down. Quite often, you'll see something you want in the middle or bottom of the stack, and usually you'll only see one or two of the items on the cards below the top one. This always leads to an intriguing decision of how much do you bid to get the card you want. You'll select one of your bidding cards and reveal simultaneously. If you see the card you want on top, it's easy to bid your highest crew card, which is the 10. However, if anyone ties, then the next highest player takes the topmost crate card first. Then, the tied players discard their cards and play another one to determine who gets the next crate. If anyone ever gets down to one card in their hand, they'll pick up all of their discards, giving them all 10 cards again. And while you can clearly see what the first crate contains, it's the crates below that can provide a bit of a quandary. If you see something you want below that top card, what do you bid in order to not be first, thus allowing you to draw after other players? The three different ways each item scores is also a fun tension throughout the game. Gold is straightforward. Simply count up the gold and collect that number of points, which are represented by coins. Players then compare the number of cannons they have showing in their hold and subtract the lowest. So, in a three-player game, if Lauren has 10 cannons, Michelle has 7 cannons, and Bruno has 4 cannons, Lauren would score 6 points, Michelle 3 points, and Bruno 0 points. Sorry, Bruno. Finally, all players compare their contraband and gain what they have, but with one twist. The player with the most contraband gets zero points. Arr, you should have been more careful, matey. And any rats showing in your hold are worth the negative points listed next to them. There's also a full ship bonus. If your 3x3 hold is completely filled up, not counting rats, then you get an additional 8 points. I love the constant pressure of bidding, followed by trying to place your piece optimally to gain the most points for each item. 
ShipShape is not going to burn your brain, but it does offer more of a casual puzzle-type tension. It's something that can be enjoyed several times in a game night, and I've liked it at all player counts from 2 to 6, and no game has ever been longer than 20 minutes. Even though ShipShape won the 2020 American Tabletop Award for Best Casual Game, full disclosure I serve on the awards committee, it's still criminally overlooked. Don't make that mistake, friends. This is a solid game that will be a shelf staple for years to come. Thanks to Calliope Games for the review copy of Shape Shape. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hello, 5x listeners. It's Ruth here. Now, it's been a while since I last rambled on about a Feld game, but here we go again this time with a design collaboration. Published in 2017 by Queen Games with art from Dennis Lahousen, Merlin was designed by Stefan Feld and Michael Reineck. In this Camelot-themed Euro game, players move both their own knight and a shared Merlin figure around the famous round table to take actions, in the hope of eventually earning the right to be named King Arthur's successor. As is typical of Feld designs, there are a multitude of ways to earn points, so the key to the game is figuring out what you can afford to ignore. But let your opponents take over too much land, or allow traitors to run unchecked, and there will be consequences, as proving the ability to rule means proving your ability to juggle all aspects of the kingdom. Merlin is played over six rounds, with scoring phases after the even-numbered rounds plus a final endgame scoring. Each round starts with the players rolling their four dice, three in their color and one white. They'll then take turns spending a die to move in the central rondelle. The colored dice will move the player's knight clockwise around the action spaces, and players must move exactly the number of pips shown. The white die is used to move Merlin, and he can move in either direction. The player will then take the action shown on the space reached by whichever piece they moved. The area around the board is divided into six principalities, and many of the actions relate to those spaces. Players can deploy henchmen to these areas to place influence markers, or to gain resources of that color, in the form of shields, construction materials, or flags, which bring single-use powers. Other actions don't relate exactly to the principalities, but instead let players build manors on a separate hex map, earn points for the resources they've collected, earn mission cards, or even take possession of the legendary artifacts Excalibur and the Grail. Once per turn, the player can also complete a mission card to earn points before the next player starts their movement. After everyone has played all four of their dice, the round will end. If it's time for scoring, players first attempt to repel traitors by turning in shields of the appropriate types, losing points for any they can't defeat. They then score for their territories on the map and their influence and henchmen on the main board. If the game isn't over, players will gain three more traitors to deal with in the next phase, and some influence markers will be removed from the board. Movement in the game gets interesting when you consider the Merlin die. Since anyone can move the piece, you might want to do so early if you have the exact role you need for the action you want to take. But if you need something else first to maximize that turn, you're going to be trying to resist the temptation to stare too closely at the Merlin piece in the hopes everyone else will ignore it and leave it where it is until you're ready. Or maybe the Merlin piece isn't where you want it to be, so you try to nudge others to go ahead and move them already, in the hopes of bettering your odds. It adds an element of player interaction to the rondelle movement that can be frustrating to some, but since it only affects one of your four moves each round, there's a lot of room for you to plan and move unimpeded in Merlin. 
And then there are those legendary items, Excalibur and the Grail. These can be valuable, but only if you're in possession of them during scoring. Excalibur earns you extra points if you manage to repel all traitors successfully during the phase, and the Grail lets you break a tie for influence in one principality. Grabbing them early leaves time for others to steal them from you, but if you choose to wait, you might not get the roll you need to take the item in time. Their benefit being so situational makes succeeding with them all the more satisfying, and it also makes them not so valuable as to be necessary for the win, so it leaves players with the freedom to do other things instead. Merlin comes with a module in the box that can be added to increase the complexity of the game. This additional piece lets players choose to gain a new ability after completing a mission card instead of taking its normal point reward. Players can earn up to four such abilities throughout the game, with the abilities available to them depending on the difficulty of the completed card. And those bonus powers can get very powerful. That being said, getting the right card to get the ability that suits your strategy isn't always possible. So they're not necessarily game-breaking and you do need to pay attention to when you'd be better off just taking the points for your card instead. As expected, the game comes with a ton of bits, from a multitude of punchboard tiles and tokens, to wooden cubes, octagons, knights, henchmen, and dice. The non-player tokens and bits are color-coded to the six principalities, and if you can't discern color, well, you're out of luck. This is not a game for you. The color and busyness of the board can also be a little confusing for those new to the game, so if you're the one teaching, be prepared to spend some time orienting everyone. Now, I'm obviously a Feld fan if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, and I do find Merlin extremely enjoyable, in part due to the fact that at least a few times during the game, everyone is going to manage to pull off a very satisfying move due to the timely use of single-use banner powers, or perhaps one of Merlin's staffs, which let them take two turns with the titular wizard. I love games that let you puzzle out a really good turn, and this is definitely one of those. The dice mitigation afforded with the use of apples or banner powers means that poor luck with rolls can be overcome, and so this is a roll and move that I can get behind. If you want to share your favorite Feld or Camelot-themed game, you can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. This has been the Five By, your five-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on the Five By and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fivebygames. Thanks for listening and happy gaming. <laughs>